Welcome to Insights Now, a series of conversations designed to shine a light of clarity on the complex world of investing. We've entitled our second season Asset Class. After years of very good returns, broad indices of US stocks and bonds look expensive relative to history. This reality both limits future returns and increases the risk of a market correction. Investors who want to enhance future returns or reduce risk may need to adopt a more sophisticated approach, looking at different sectors and styles within US equities and bonds, and looking at other assets to diversify their portfolios. And that's what Asset Class is all about. In each episode, we look at an area of investing and speak to an expert in this area. The very long rallies in US fixed income and equity markets have provided investors with excellent returns in recent years. However, for many people, a key goal is to achieve a strong stream of income from their portfolio. And today's very low bond and dividend deals make this challenging. To meet this challenge, investment managers have been looking at more diversified sources of income. One of these managers is my colleague and friend, Mike Seanhout, who serves as lead portfolio manager of the JP Morgan Income Builder Fund and is a key member of the multi-asset solutions team here at JP Morgan Asset Management. So Mike, welcome to Insights Now. Thanks, David. Uh, very good to be here. So I know that you've got a very flexible approach to finding income around the world, but doing so requires having a view about how the global economy and monetary policy are evolving. So to start with, how do you see the US economic recovery unfolding in the year ahead? Well, we see a, a, a prolonged period of above-trend growth uh, looking through 21 and, and, and probably well into to next year. Um, this is really supported by the reopening and recovery and also the strong policy support that we've seen across the board. Um, we see likely a strong earnings season, particularly this quarter. It may still even surpass some, some revised analyst estimates. Um, and although this recovery is really just beginning, it is moving cr pretty quickly. So we are moving through the cycle um, at, at a pretty quick pace. Um, but I think that the key points to think about, you know, as we move forward are that, you know, the, the commitment of the Fed to keep rates low. So that kind of keeps this income challenge out there for people. Um, you know, the questions that we have about, um, you know, traditional fixed income and, and, and rates. And then also, you know, about where we're going to go in equity um, and, and what's already kind of reflecting this recovery. So, um, OK, so that's that's where we are in the U.S. Uh, what do you think about the recovery overseas? Well, so, so the U.S. is likely to lead much of the world. I mean, so we've seen, obviously, the stimulus packages and the continued uh, support through an infrastructure package as well, um, and also on the vaccine. So the progress has, has, has been much stronger uh, in the U.S. than many parts of, uh, of, of the world. Um, Europe, in particular, is an area that we look at. Um, has been much more challenged when we think about, you know, vaccinations uh, and the impacts of the shutdown. So um, we do see those areas uh, beginning to reflect that reopening. It will just likely be later in the year. Um, so we do see strong potential for growth in areas like Japan and Europe and the rest of the developed and emerging world, um, continuing more through the second half of the year. Uh, and, and perhaps into next year as well. Uh, so there is really a, a global opportunity, a, gro a global growth story that we think can persist for some time now based on the tremendous stimulus and, and uh, impact from reopening in markets. So uh, I know you talked about the importance of the Fed's commitment to low interest rates and the problem that that creates for uh, income investors. Uh, but 
how long do you think they're going to maintain that commitment? And to be specific, how long do you think it's going to be before they start tapering these huge bond purchases? And then how long is it going to be before they start raising short-term interest rates? Yeah, I mean, that's the question that's on, on everyone's mind. So first of all, starting on, on interest rates, we, we think that there is considerable time before uh, they're going to even be talking about uh, raising interest rates, probably into uh, 2023, likely there. You know, there's been tremendous to commitment to keeping um, rates low. Uh, and obviously, the Fed has talked about how they're thinking about the inflation environment and, and has been very explicit in wanting to see realized inflation meaningfully above target for a period of time before they would even contemplate trying to tighten. So I think they are acutely aware of the risks of, of, of tightening policy too early um, in this recovery. But at the same time, I think tapering is likely to be occurring on, on a much shorter uh, timeline. But we think that the Fed has clearly learned some of the lessons from the, the, the taper tantrum uh, and is already being very cautious, and I think will continue to be very cautious in, in how they actually do taper. So we think that, yes, you're getting kind of the, the, the thoughts in the market, the conversation is out there. Um, we think perhaps not until the end of this year, and maybe there's even risk of pushing into next year, um, are you likely to get the formal kind of announcements from the Fed of starting a tapering process. And then it's going to be a pretty slow process. So it will probably take place through much of next year um, in, in any event. So the bottom line that we take out of this is that policy is going to remain supportive for a considerable amount of time. Rates are going to remain low for a considerable amount of time. Uh, and we think that the Fed has been very clear in not wanting to move too quickly and, and not wanting to kind of pull back on the recovery that we're seeing in the U.S. So so clearly a very dovish, a very cautious Federal Reserve. They really want to see the whites of the eyes of inflation and actually beyond that really before they, before they tighten. Uh, but having said that, we've seen long-term interest rates back up, of course, since this is from where they were last summer. Uh, we've also seen them stall out, uh, you know, in recent weeks at, um, you know, a level of, you know, 160 on a 10-year Treasury. Um, you could argue that that's still pretty low, given the potential for a full economic recovery here. So where do you, what's your view on long-term interest rates uh, going forward over the next year? Yeah, it's been really interesting. You know, obviously what, what the market did prior, but then over the past you know, few weeks has, has been quite interesting with the tenure. So our, our view for some time has been that alongside improving economic growth, it made sense for the 10-year to, to move higher and yields to move higher. Now, perhaps it came a little more quickly and sharply um, than we had anticipated earlier this year, um, but brought you to a place that was not really reflecting um, even the full kind of growth expectations that we have. And so that felt like, although fast, a reasonably justified move up in the 10-year. Um, we've also continued to think that the tenure will likely continue to grind higher. But importantly, as we just talked about, it will be alongside growth. And, and that to us is the, is the biggest key in this story, um, is if the tenure is moving higher alongside a strong economic growth environment um, and doing so in a somewhat controlled fashion, um, then that to us can be very positive across the board. And we can talk, I'm sure, later about the different ways that that, that can be positive. Um, but, but the move back over the past week or two, 
Um, we've spent a little bit time, you know, thinking thinking about. There's obviously been a lot of commentary kind of on this move, and you know, I think there could be a variety of factors. Um, first of all, you did get a very quick move up in the ten-year, and sometimes when you get those really quick, sharp moves, it, it slightly overshoots at a time and just needs to kind of pause and 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 um, and reflect, so to speak. Um, also, some sign of, of technical impacts, whether it be Asian or Japanese buyers, you know, coming back into the treasury market, um, and then positioning, you know, short positioning across. Uh, the marketplace may have played a role here too. So obviously we're watching that you know, very closely, um, but we still expect those rates to, to, to move a little bit higher uh, over time alongside the growth environment. Okay, so, so given the sort of your overall outlook on the, on the global economy and also the outlook on the Fed, where do you see the best opportunities in global fixed income markets? That's, that's a tough question. It's, um, the, there aren't a lot of great opportunities in, in global fixed income markets um, to, to both deliver yield and a prospect for, for, for some decent return. Um, we, we still like credit broadly, um, in particular U.S. high yield. Um, but the challenge is those markets have moved so much already. You know, spreads are, are really tight across, uh, across markets. High yield spreads are tight. IG spreads are really tight. Um, that we don't think there's a tremendous amount of spread tightening left in markets. But at the same time, we do think that the fundamental outlook that we described, one that has you know, stronger growth, um, that has reopening um, and, and, and support from, from policy still, um, is, is one that will justify um, the carry that you can earn in some of these areas. We don't think the default rates are likely to you know, tick back up. They've been coming down pretty dramatically. Um, potential for upgrades, you know, across markets in the uh, across securities in the crossover space, and so I think U.S. high yield, although it's probably at some of the lower weights we've we've held uh, in, in the lives of our strategies, um, is still a meaningful exposure that we have in in portfolios because you can earn that carry, and and there are just not that many assets that are giving you four plus percent yields. Um, and so high yield remains an area. We, we still have allocations to uh, securitized, you know, non-agency mortgages um, and very small allocations in areas of uh, like emerging market debt. But really, most of our risk is, is, is focused on the fixed income side in high yield. So turning over to equities, I mean, obviously, as you said, the fixed income environment is challenging. Uh, dividend income and equities can, can offer an, an attractive alternative fixed income in this environment. But are you concerned about a dividend income strategy when you've already got pretty high valuations in the equity market? It's, it's, it's the first objection we usually receive when we talk about you know, our, our equity preference and our tilt towards equity that we've, we, we've had for some time now. Um, and, and yeah, look, valuations in, in equities as a whole, when you look across the market, um, are, are somewhat expensive, um, you know, depending on the view that you look at. But if you look a little bit below the surface, particularly when we look at what happened last year, a lot of that move up in valuations and equities was driven by a smaller part of the marketplace, the very high growth, uh, tech-oriented work-from-home uh, pieces of the market that we know benefited so much. When you look at the broader market, and more specifically, the more value-oriented pieces of the market, or what we're looking at, which are the higher dividend portions of the market, 
Um, although they might be getting a little more expensive relative to their own histories, on a relative basis, they still look very inexpensive. So there are opportunities that are right in the wheelhouse of an income-oriented portfolio where we are able to look for higher dividend securities in sectors like financials, let's say, which really, really struggled through much of the, um, the, the pandemic and the shutdowns and are starting to show those signs of life as the economy start to reopen and, and grow. So there are parts of the equity market that are tilted more cyclically, that are tilted more towards the value side of the market, which we think still offer meaningful opportunities where you're not buying super expensive parts of the market. And then think you're sticking with equities here, but if you if you sort of look at income on overseas equities, we've got a page in our guide to the markets, page 57, uh, which shows that international stocks generally offer higher dividend yields compared to US stocks. And actually that dividend yield is a little bit elevated even relative to its average right now. Um, so when you look at international equities for dividends, what parts of the world have you found most attractive from an income perspective? Yeah, we've actually become a lot more interested in, in international equities. Um, and for the reasons that, that you mentioned and you've been talking about. So dividend yields tend to be uh, meaningfully higher you know, outside the U.S. Um, but when we talked about that, that macro backdrop, um, really, the U.S. has kind of been the lead and the kind of the driver in growth so far. Um, there have been the challenges in the rollout of the vaccine, but, but we still see that coming. It's just going to be a little delayed. And so markets like Europe, both Europe and the U.K., um, we think are in a potentially really strong place um, to take advantage of what hasn't been as much focus. They haven't rallied. They've, they've done a little bit better this year, what we've seen so far. Um, but when we look at kind of an aggregate considering last year, markets like Europe and Japan and the UK um, haven't done as well. So we think that as, we, as the market gains confidence in the reopening in those areas and the fiscal support packages that, that do exist, that there is tremendous opportunity to pick up a much more cyclical and by the nature of some of those markets, value-like uh, equity exposure. So getting a higher dividend yield, exposure to the cyclical recovery, and uh, markets that perhaps are not as expensive as, as other parts of the market. So we've talked about fixed income, we've talked about equity. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the land in between. Um, how do you feel about preferred stock and convertible bonds in this environment? Because we're, we're opportunistic, we really look around for wherever the income opportunities are. And, and that means that areas like hybrids can, can sometimes provide very unique you know, opportunities for us to capture something in the portfolios that we might not be able to capture in just going to straight equities or, or straight bonds. Uh, in fact, today, uh, preferreds are one of our, our favorite uh, asset classes or market exposures in the portfolio. And, and this... Um, this exposure is made up um, in part of, of U.S. bank preferreds, uh, in part by uh, industrial hybrids, and then a smaller part outside the U.S., in Europe in particular, um, that invest in something pretty similar to what preferreds are in the U.S., um, but they tend to have slightly different structures and, and regulatory usage, and, and, and people refer to them either as, say, AT1s, or contingent convertibles or COCOs. Um, and we monitor that risk very closely, but there are some attractive opportunities there where you look at that uh, European financials market and getting exposure 
um, through, through the hybrids that you mentioned. Um, converts at times we've had allocations to. Today we're a little bit on the lower side, um, in part because we want some of that full equity exposure. And you can tend to get some higher yields right now in either the equities or in the bonds than you do in the convertible bond today. Okay. Um, now, I know your funds also drive significant income from covered calls. Um, can you explain in layman's terms how that works? Yeah, so these are really interesting exposures that um, we hadn't taken advantage of for a long time, in large part because the volatility environment prior to last March was so benign. But starting in March, we saw these tremendous increases in, in volatility. Unsurprisingly, we all kind of lived through that period, right? And uh, VIX and other volatility measures shot up tremendously. And what this did was it created an opportunity for a strategy um, by using a covered call. So basically what we're doing is we're buying an underlying equity exposure. Uh, initially, that was the S&P 500. More recently, we're using the Russell 2000 small cap. And what you're doing is you're selling calls. So you're selling away some of your upside. And in exchange, you're getting an attractive premium, which basically... Um, creates a yield for the overall strategy. So you can take an index like the S&P 500 or Russell 2000 that, as we noted earlier, the yields are pretty low on those broad indices. And if you are willing to engage in, in a covered call structure and give up some of your upside, you can receive a much higher coupon or yield out of that structure. So we're able to take something that would have been, you know, one, two percent type of yield as an underlying and convert that into a six, even seven percent yield in exchange for giving up some of our upside. And when volatility is high, like it was then and what it remains today in small cap in particular, it means that you get a much higher premium and so you can get a much higher yield and you don't have to give up as much of your upside in the portfolio. And so you're basically just converting uh, potential capital gain um, in the future into income today. Interesting. Um, now, you obviously invest in a very wide range of strategies, but you don't do it alone. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about how you lean on other teams and portfolio managers around JP Morgan Asset Management for their insight and expertise once you've made those broad asset allocation decisions? Yeah, our multi-asset income strategies um, are not just me sitting there back in a room trying to make all these decisions. I rely on the expertise across our organization. Because we're so flexible and so well diversified, we need to leverage the insights of all of the specialists across JP Morgan. So we're running a portfolio of what we call customized sleeves. So those sleeves are not like buying a fund of funds. These are utilizing specialist managers who have experience and skill in managing towards an income-oriented objective. So what we do is we pull together these experts across the organization, think about what role we want them to play, how we want them to deliver it, and then how we build an asset allocation and manage the allocations and hedging and risks around that. So we're constantly partnering with, with people like Claire Hart, who manages our U.S. equity sleeve that many of you might be familiar with, or Helge Scabelli, who runs our global equity. And I could go through a list of managers that you're probably familiar with that, that 
run other strategies, but also run these customized income strategies for us. And not only do they run the strategies, but they feed back their bottom-up views to us. So our overall income strategy is, to, is a combination of the top-down views that we form as overall managers, thinking about asset allocation and risk management, and the bottoms-up views that we get from our managers about what they're seeing, what the risks are, and what the opportunities are in each of those spaces. So, so the, the asset allocation decision itself is, is, to somewhat, is to some extent informed by all of these experts in their spaces telling you what they're seeing also. Absolutely. I mean, we use a ton of, of, of insights that we get from ourselves, the portfolio managers, our quantitative research teams, our qualitative strategy teams, our manager research teams, as well as those bottoms up insights that we just talked about. I see. Finally, Mike, um, what type of investor is this fund best suited for? Well, you know, I like to say who doesn't like getting paid uh, a monthly income for any investment that they own. So, I mean, that's that's a pretty attractive, you know, characteristic. Um, you know, we pay out um, monthly income kind of as it's earned. It's not paying out of capital. Um, so I think that's a, a pretty attractive uh, feature, uh, particularly in this environment where it's really hard to, to get yield. Um, you know, many of our investors are either nearing or, or in retirement where they have a specific need for that paycheck, for that cash flow that they get every month. Uh, but many of our investors actually reinvest their dividends and invest here as an approach and a strategy um, that they believe in. So, you know, higher yield components perhaps can give uh, some greater stability uh, to an overall portfolio if more of your overall return comes from a stable source such as, such as dividends uh, or, or coupon. And so because we are able to, to pull all of that together with that income tilt, but importantly, use the breadth of this organization, the, the expertise that our underlying managers have, and our skill in asset allocating and risk managing across multiple areas, introducing new asset classes when we think that they're appropriate, removing asset classes when they're no longer a fit for the portfolio, um, and then putting all of that to, uh, together to deliver over a 3.5% yield in an environment where you're getting just over 1.5% on the tenure and nothing in your savings, virtually nothing in your savings accounts, um, I think is a pretty attractive feature. Absolutely. Well, listen, thank you for joining us, Mike, and thank you all for listening. Thanks. Great to be here. Please tune in to our next episode when I'll be joined by James McNerney, Portfolio Manager in our liquidity business here at JP Morgan Asset Management. This content is intended for information only based on assumptions in current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Investments involve risks. Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate, including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. Forecasts and estimates may or may not come to